Glad you could join us today on another episode of Hands-On Business Podcast. I'm your host, Hakeem Adebi, as hopefully you know by now. And I try to bring you interesting guests that can give you business ideas and tips on starting, developing, uh, or growing your business. Now, on today's program, we're joined by Everett Crossland and Andy Molnar, who are both experts in commercialization of digital therapeutics. And we're going to get into that. So Everett leads the commercial organization at Cognito Therapeutics, and he's the chief commercial officer. Uh, and so he's leading Cognito's commercial readiness, marketing, sales, and health economic evidence development for the company's breakthrough treatment portfolio. Now, interestingly enough, then um, I met Everett on LinkedIn, which was very, and I say interestingly enough, because a couple of episodes ago, I was doing about B2B lead generation and LinkedIn, we were talking about how to connect with people. And I can't quite remember how we met. I don't know if it's, you listened to one of my podcasts or entered a poll, but um, we, we met on LinkedIn uh, and we were in a similar kind of space. Uh, Everett's in healthcare and digital therapeutics. I'm in healthcare as well. Uh, and then we connected and were interested to get this podcast together. And then he introduced me to Andy. So it shows that LinkedIn does work and that uh, when you're not specifically looking uh, for something, you can find it in the most unusual places. So that leads us on to Andy. And Andy Molnar is the CEO of the Digital Therapeutics Alliance. Uh, and that's a trade organization. And Andy spent the last three and a half years focusing on how to commercialize software as a medical device products. So today is really one, I'm going to say for the healthcare space, because we're all in that sort of space. But I'm sure what we're going to talk about is all transferable to other business sectors as well, because we're going to specifically be talking about how do you create, launch and monetize a new category. So Everett, first and then Andy, tell the listeners what you would consider to be your superpower, uh, i.e. the one or two things that you think you add to any organization over and above what other people would be able to do. Yeah, sure. So, it, you know, it, I know we got some of these questions in advance and I appreciate that. And that really is such a tough kind of introspective question that, to answer, you know, I, and I, I thought about answering in, in two ways. One is I think more than anything, I, I tend to come into companies that are uh, going through a stage change and helping them really focus in on what is a, a, a core area of focus that will that that should be uh, their end goal that's multiple years out, and then helping them kind of stay stay on track and focus to through those stage changes and all that change management that is required through that process. And um, that's not a necessarily a, a superpower that I, that came naturally to me. It was kind of forced on me uh, as I jumped into, you know, small startup companies where focus is always um, of utmost importance and, and also often challenged. Um, you know, the other way I thought about answering that question is like the superpower that I would, I would love to be able to have. Uh, and uh, and be able to bring to an organization so kind of an aspirational superpower that I probably don't have or don't have today, and I think that's uh, that, that would probably in these organizations that are small and growing and going through stage change, I would love to be able to be a uh, a better connector across these different functions because I again similar to the challenge of focus. I also see a challenge uh, in these companies where uh, even at a very small stage, silos start to form. And I know Andy can, can speak to this and we all think about silos in large companies, but really at some point in time, those, those silos formed when everything was quite small. And um, and in balancing that aspirational superpower against uh, the superpower of focus, I think, is something that I'll continue to to strive for uh, throughout my career. But yeah, that's I think that's that's really how I think about um, bringing a superpower to small digital health growth stage companies. Well, your first your 
superpower which you have is one which is obviously critical in business because lots of people can't see the end and mm -hmm. can't manage the whole process and can't bring it all together and then the superpower you aspire to have is is one i just did a podcast on in terms of how do you ensure that everybody's involved and that you don't have silos forming which i'm sure andy can speak more to so yeah sorry andy over to you well it's it's interesting that everett said that because i was i was going to say that my superpower is uh the power of collaboration and i think um i think though the way that you know, Everett was talking about it within an organization. I kind of think of, think of it as how we approach um, getting work done, especially in startup environments like this. And which is why I found myself heading up a trade organization is because I didn't just look to the success of the organizations that I was working for prior to this at, um, at Paratherapeutics and then Cognoa. I was more thinking, well, if the whole industry or if one of these companies is going to be successful, then the whole industry needs to be successful, right? And so it's that internal collaboration and external collaboration. And if you can do that in a way where you're not, you're not, it's not cutthroat, you're not at each other all the time, and you're just thinking, how, how are we driving an industry forward as, as a group, even if we have different needs and our pathways don't match entirely, um, you start to see that that it's the driving force, right? And I think you can take those external sort of collaboration ideas and keep them internal and create a culture where people get work done, um, you know, whether you're mean to them or nice to them, right? It's their job, they're gonna get there, right? But I, I've always found that it's so much better and people come up and, wake up in the morning wanting to get work done and we'll go above and beyond if you can create that that proper culture that that is all about everybody being successful. And just as a matter of interest in this current environment, Andy, uh, has that been made more difficult with the um, obviously coronavirus, we can't meet as often as we could, et cetera. How have you managed that? Because uh, that'd be really useful to know. Yeah, um, well, for sure. It's definitely been harder. I mean, some of the main places we would go is conferences, other trade organizations, AdvaMed, NCPDP, et cetera, and any business that you're in was going to have a trade organization that's part of it. And you would start talking to people with similar, similar interests. Um, and I mean, I know I personally struggled during COVID to keep those connections alive because even the virtual conferences were hard to network the way that I'm used to networking. I think probably the fortunate thing for me and then and I'm sure for Everett too, is that we went into the coronavirus having been in this industry for long enough that we knew a lot of the players. So where I missed out on was probably the new entry, the new entrance into, into digital therapeutics, but at least I, at least we had those, those connections already established prior. Yeah. You know, I, it's an interesting point. I, I like the kind of positive take on um, this part of uh, such a tragic event and, and kind of episode in our history is that I think a lot of us in our companies um, realized very quickly that we were entering uh, novel territory, right? In, in novel territory in the sense of how do you run a business during this time? You know, how do you stay afloat? How do you raise money? Um, how do you uh, engage and continue to scale with customers in a, in a new way? Um, and so I think a lot of us really started to reach out more um, aggressively to share notes and learnings. Um, you know, it's something that we, as Andy said, we just kind of tend to do at the, the various conferences and uh, nexus points that where we just naturally bump into each other. Um, but in this case, we were all facing this challenge and uh, none of us had, that none of us had faced before. And, um, and it forced us to, uh, to really lean on each other and, and, and trade notes in a, um, you know, and, and still maintain a competitive nature, but, uh, but trade notes in a way that helped us you know, be better in our, in our organizations. I, I, during that time, I joined a, a group of um, biotech executives here in the Massachusetts area that really, and it, it still exists today on, on WhatsApp. Um, and it, 
in the entire point of that group, I think that's now about 200 executives is to uh, help share notes on, you know, what to do for things like this, as simple or complicated as return to work. So, you know, we're not talking about really meaty subjects like, you know, how to run a randomized controlled study during uh, COVID. We're talking about the things that are nuts and bolts in, a, in an industry. And yet when we share those, um, again, in a, in a way that maintains a competitive nature across the industry, um, I think it helps us be better in our, in our organizations. And it takes, we can take any number of notes back that, that help us really scale um, during an extraordinary time. And obviously with COVID, there's going to be a lasting impact here. I think certain changes are here, um, I would assume to stay. And one of those changes, uh, since we're talking about scaling a novel category is how to engage. And I think as Akeem, as you, as you opened this uh, podcast, how to, how to scale in a way that maybe doesn't necessarily take as much in-person engagement. And um, to your point about you know, some of the content that you put out there coming back in a way that maybe was unexpected or maybe reaches across industries that, that you'd not even not expected. I think that that's one of the learnings that we see in COVID is that, you know, we can engage with customers and we can engage with stakeholders for, uh, to kind of put myself into Andy's shoes momentarily, um, across an industry in a way that is virtual, maintain, maintain and build relationships virtually. Um, and that, that really has taken multiple pressures to, to achieve because prior to COVID, many of us probably would have been fine with saying, let's initiate this online and then let's, you know, let's fly out and have the dinner and do all of that. Um, but maybe in the back of all our minds before, you know, where we were having that first meeting after flying to, you know, someplace that typically you wouldn't want to fly to, or you wouldn't necessarily naturally fly to, um, maybe in the back of our minds, we were all thinking, couldn't have we just done this online? And now it feels more natural to do it. And it's so much more efficient and cost efficient, time efficient. Um, and I, I think that some of those things are here to stay. There's still incredible value in meeting in person. Um, and you see that in you know, some of these return to work policies where I think we recognize there's a balance to, to uh, be achieved there too. Yeah, no, I, I, I think the one, I, was, I was speaking to one of my colleagues at a pharmaceutical company and his concern was they've had the best year um, for quite some time and had minimal costs. And obviously mm -hmm. the board are now thinking, well, we can do this every year, can't we? So, you know, <laughs> traveling and, and meeting people is key uh, when you yeah. try to build categories, et cetera. But obviously people are now looking at the bottom line and thinking, mm, can't you do that again year in, year out without spending the money that you used to spend before COVID? Uh, so mm -hmm. I think that's probably going to be one of the challenges uh, as we move forward. So, so thanks for that. So in terms of, you know, your areas of expertise, it's all around therapeutics. Uh, and, and, and I'll be honest, I don't know a huge amount about digital therapeutics. I know a lot about therapeutics uh, and digital are, are starting to become a, a, an emerging category. So can you explain exactly what digital therapeutics are and what purpose they serve as opposed to standard uh, therapeutics? Do you want me to jump on this one, Everett, first? Oh, yeah, since, go uh, for it, Andy. Yeah. Since, uh, you know, I'm heading up the industry kind of. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'll, I mean, I'll keep it simple, um, you know, software as a medical device is how we are regulated within the FDA, but we're a subsection of that. So digital therapeutic is any software-based product that's clinically evaluated and evidence-based to treat, manage, or prevent a medical condition. Um, as, as an example, um, you can treat nightmare disorder. You can, there's therapeutics in the works for autism, right? There's, ther there's a lot in diabetes, um, musculoskeletal and Alzheimer's as I'm sure, uh, Everett will get into later. And these are all incredibly novel products. Um, and the therapies that they, that they provide as since they've been tested against similar endpoints to drugs, um, have incredible impact on patients' lives. Now, the reason it's important is, you know, there are over 300,000, 
uh, mobile health apps on the app store. And we're sort of in this space where it, it, it's reminiscent of when people would go around and sell elixirs from town to town. And, you know, it was probably like, it, you know, um, you know, sugar syrup and things that maybe made your stomach feel better or whatever, but people didn't really know what they were taking. They were just looking for some, some sort of elixir that would help them with any number of, of issues that they've had at the time. Um, and from there, people were like, okay, now I want to know what it is I'm actually putting in my body. What, how does this drug treat my issues? Is it pain? Is it, you know, diabetes, et cetera. And so we're in this space where we're saying, okay, sure. There are a lot of mobile health apps that are, that are awesome. Right. And they help a lot of people, but without a clinical study, you don't really know what you're putting in your body. You don't know what you're doing to yourself. And we've gotten to a point where these, these products actually can cause harm, right? So if you have a product that helps you treat your diabetes and it does not tell you the proper way to handle your diabetes, you could die, right? And that's not the only one. There are products out there for cancer as well, helping patients. And so we really need to transition. It's a natural progression into a way that we validate those products that could potentially not be safe or, you know, are impacting people for the rest of their lives in many cases. And so the digital therapeutics industry has come about because of that. And then also because of this understanding that if this is true healthcare, how, how is it going to fit into the, into the healthcare ecosystem? Because as we know, it moves slow and it's not easy to change. And, and these types of products aren't, aren't quite as much of a natural fit as, as you would like. Right. And so one more point that I'll hand it over to Everett. But when I started in this industry, the first thing I said was, well, how do you e-prescribe these products? How would a doctor go into their EMR and click and click to order it or, or click to say, um, I want to prescribe this to a patient. And then how's that get in the patient's hands? So the first thing I did with somebody from Achille, um, Jeffrey Abraham, who's another leader in our space, um, we went to NCPDP and formed the digital therapeutics task group to figure out how these types of products would actually sit along other pharmaceutical and med device and medical device products. And that was sort of the beginning of not the beginning, there was other things going on, but building the, you know, the piping for how everything is going to start to function within, um, within this complex healthcare space. Obviously. I mean, I, I work for traditional, not anymore, but I used to work for traditional pharma companies. So the big boys, the Fivers, the Novartis, et cetera, how, how, are they, are they trying to get into the space? Are they seeing this as a threat to their, to their long-term strategies? What, 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 what's the dynamics there? Got it, Everett. Yeah. 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 And I know you can comment on this as well. And you know, the, the entire space is, is, is evolved and continues to evolve um, with the pharma companies being part of that evolution, right? So I think if you asked um, uh, somebody from Pfizer, even just five or six years ago, their perspective on digital health and digital therapeutics, you may end up you, you may have ended up talking to somebody either on the clinical team who is looking at some digital biomarkers, especially at Pfizer at that time, or you'd be uh, talking to somebody on their marketing team who's thinking of digital marketing, and maybe they're like bridging into, you know, apps that uh, are a little bit more than marketing, but like kind of wrapping around the patient experience. And today that has uh, largely evolved that perspective. Now there's still a, an entire industry looking at digital biomarkers and making extraordinary progress there. Um, as, but in addition to that, you have large teams across, um, I would say nearly every pharma company in the top, you know, top 20 when you think about market cap, but, uh, but even beyond the top 20, when you think about market cap um, that, are, that have a team focused on digital therapeutics, whether it's a um, standalone digital therapeutics franchise that they're contemplating or advancing, or it's a uh, companion to their, uh, to their drug portfolio or their biologic portfolio. Um, and, and then some diagnostic di diagnostics as well uh, that uh, are being contemplated by these companies. And, you know, I think Andy made a really good point when we think about a novel category and Cognito, 
you know, we, we really look at Cognito as a novel class of digital therapeutics within a novel category, because we're one of the few companies that's coming out with uh, or advancing a disease modifying uh, treatment and portfolio portfolio of treatments that really goes beyond um, some of the prior generations. And that, that in and of itself presents some challenges, but also some opportunities. But when you think about like what Andy's talking about, kind of the, the railing and, or the rails or the plumbing and infrastructure, we're really still there as an industry. We're still at that point as a, as an industry where just the, to, to uh, use multiple different imageries in one comment or paragraph here, but we're really at that stage where, you know, the framing of the house is still being built and, um, and it requires some of the pioneers in the space, Cognoa being one, uh, Pear and, and Achille and, and now, you know, that those next generations in the form of Cognito coming in and pushing the stakeholders to build, build out the rest of the house, because uh, without that, that push um, and without bringing something that's, that's extraordinarily valuable to the table, you're not going to see the rest of the house get built because there's just not, there's just not enough motivation. And pharma companies are really key in doing that because pharma companies are accustomed to uh, bringing the level of evidence that is necessary to uh, get physicians and payers on board. Um, and they're financed to be able to do that too. And, and our, our industry is this year and last year is really starting to see the financing available for us to bring the evidence to bear such that, um, such that, that physicians and payers see a body of evidence that is compelling to them. And in prior years, uh, that hasn't always been the case. And I think with these, these stakeholders really coming into to play and the new financing that, that COVID has helped dr- drive as well, I think in the coming years, we're gonna see uh, the adoption curve in the scale curve really move into maybe an early majority stage Whereas right now we're still in the early adopter stage. So, I mean, you've both worked in companies at different stages. You're just talking about adoption there. So this is probably ideal. Um, so different stages of the lifestyle journey, you know, life, lifestyle, life cycle journey, should I say. Um, yeah. And we obviously want to get into discussing, you know, how do you get from creation of a category because these are effectively, as you said, novel and new categories. So how do you go from that uh, creation of that category and then monetizing it? Uh, can you talk us through those, those steps? You know, how, how do you even decide what area you're going to go to at, at, at the outset? Yeah, you know, and Andy, jump in here too. I'll be quick with uh, this answer. Um, I, you know, I think a lot of it is is driven by. Uh, your your opportunity. So if you look at the the early generation, earlier generations of digital therapeutics, um, there was the technological uh, capacity matched to kind of low hanging fruit in opportunity. So um, pair therapeutics, for example, uh, look largely for, for a number of years. And now they're, they're branching out beyond this, but largely for a number of years, was very focused on digitized cognitive behavioral therapy applied against high cost, high need spaces like addiction, depression, schizophrenia, et cetera. And so you, you look at what your technology can do today and how it can evolve very quickly with, uh, certain investments and where your highest need is. And that, you know, those match up to a place where um, you can, you're more likely to have success while at the same time, there are plenty of failure, failed companies that did just that. And some of it, you know, it still comes down to a little bit of luck and, and who, can, who can raise enough money to survive the, the trough. Um, but you look at those earlier companies like Pear, Achille, Cognoa, Voluntis, Omada, Lavongo, you know, they were leveraging available technologies 
um, with a vision to advancing those technologies, but leveraging available technologies to solve a, uh, an acute and unmet need that everybody felt was highly painful at that moment. And um, that, that at least gives you a higher likelihood of, of success, even if your most likely scenario is failure at that early stage. Andy, have you got anything to add to that? Um, yeah, I guess thinking of that, it's a lot of, um, you know, uh, people that that start, that work in technology, right? The, the Silicon Valley type companies very often think, all right, I can put this technology out there and it'll go viral, right? It's going to It's going to take off. And I think, you know, when I started, there was this mindset that this is the coolest thing that anyone's done in healthcare for years, you know, and that as soon as it's put out in the market, people are going to adopt it and they're going to use it. And I think, you know, where, where we've gotten to after drinking the Kool-Aid for so long um, is truly listen, your ability to listen to the market, to understand where you sit. So, I mean, if you're better off as an employer-based benefit, then you are being prescribed by a doctor in primary care or in a specialty setting understand what that is. And then the, like Everett said, the level of evidence that you need to bring to those individuals to get your product paid for, right? The level of evidence that you need to bring to an employer isn't always as, is generally not as high as if you're going to an Anthem or a United, right? I should say not generally not as high. It's never as high. Um, but if you want national coverage, then talking to those national pairs and truly understanding what you need three to four years from now so that they'll adopt you, do do that legwork now and understand if that's the right fit without going down a pathway for two or three years, thinking that everyone's going to adopt it just because it's so cool. If I can add one thing to that, and, and Andy, I know you're going to smile when I say this, because like in a novel category, that, that level of evidence, it's really interesting that you have to do more than, than mm -hmm. just like your analog. Right. So, so sure. Uh, digital therapeutics are um, are medical devices as regulated by uh, FDA of, of some kind or another, right? And and medical devices often come to market with uh, smaller studies, quicker studies. The the um, the durability is often compared to predicates and things like that. Now that that's a generalization. There are plenty of medical devices that come to market with uh, pretty extraordinary data. Um, but, but the majority, because of the way the regulatory framework is set up for medical devices come with, with a lower level of evidence or lower bar of evidence to meet when a digital therapeutic is put in front of a payer or a physician, because it is a novel modality, uh, you have to bring actually extra evidence. You have to go like that extra mile. I mean, in a great example of this is is it Cognito Therapeutics, we're, we're conducting and ex expect to conduct a phase three study that's on par with a drug-like study, even though you know, we're, we're digital therapeutic. And the, the reason for that is, I mean, we one, we've done research with, uh, we've conducted research with payers and physicians, and the majority of them said, we love your phase two data. We're eager to, we actually had 89% of physicians say that they would uh, be eager to use our, our product, um, which is the highest number I've, I've seen in my career. And so we're excited about that. At the same time, payers and physicians are also saying, if you are, if you achieve what you say you're going to achieve, you have to substantiate that with the level of evidence on par with a drug even though we recognize that you're something else. And that is part of the challenge of a, of a novel category. You have to bring more evidence than even some of your peers in other categories, simply because it's this new thing that people have to wrap their heads around and you just have to kind of bowl them over with this mountain of evidence. Mm -hmm. I, was, I was just gonna ask actually, because um, very topical, and it has been for a few years, is our friend Elizabeth Holmes at Theranos. Um, and, and, you know, and, and I've read a book, I've, well, not her book, I've read the book, I've, I've, listened, I've watched a film, 
And the, the lack of evidence fascinates me. Uh, hmm. And the, the amount of people that she engaged and got involved. Do, do, do you think those sort of disasters like that affect the the digital therapeutics industry? Does it tarnish it? Do people start thinking, oh, well, is this another one of those or is it just completely, yeah, this is a one-off? You know, so I don't think we were necessarily colored by, by Theranos specifically, but Andy brought up kind of this, uh, the example of snake oil and like, hmm kind of the gray area that that digital health and digital therapeutics are you know there's always this kind of gray area on either end of that spectrum and um and there are operators on either end of the spectrum that uh speak beyond their evidence and i think organizations like dta are, are incredibly important for maintaining integrity mm-hmm. um, but it's also incumbent upon organizations like Cognito Therapeutics and others that we, you know, we have to be a loud voice in saying that we are bringing, um, bringing really compelling safety and efficacy data um, so that it, you can't even compare us to the, uh, the company that is um, saying the same thing, but without evidence. Yeah. And it's, it, it, you know, I, my last company, um, I was at a virtual reality therapeutics company, and we consistently found companies who were competitors of ours citing our clinical data to substantiate their own product. <laughs> and so, so there are, I mean, think of, think of, think if like Glaxo did that with a Pfizer product, right? It would be, I mean, there'd be lawsuits all over everywhere. And yet, um, we're at that stage where there's still some, you know, a little bit of wild west in the in this industry, and and so we have to we have to do better, and the leaders in the space have to um, use the the money that's raised to uh, to bring the the right evidence to to bear in the the in in a level of evidence that it's just indisputable, you know, the difference between the good actors and the not so good actors. Yeah, and I would add, I know every, when we started in this industry, um, everybody thought it wasn't real. You know, like yeah. every stakeholder we talked to said, yeah, I, don't, I don't know if I believe you. You know, well, and first, first they said, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it has come, I mean, in, in three and a half years, the difference is incredible. Um, I actually have insurance companies reach out to me um, at working at different companies as opposed to the opposite, because they've gone from thinking there's, there's no way this would ever reside within our, our system. And, in you know, doctors saying, yeah, that sounds okay. To people saying technology is going to be a huge part of the future of healthcare, no matter what. And the endpoints that these guys are starting to show where back then there was like two or three products that anybody had ever heard of. And most people hadn't heard of any of them at all. And now there's, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly how many, but at least being worked on probably in the hundreds, you know, and the endpoints that they show are, are meaningful. Um, and in some places there aren't, there aren't even drugs that you can use to help in these different um, disease states, autism, for example, right. You can use atypical antipsychotics on 10 year olds. That's like your choice. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to prescribe an atypical antipsychotic to a 10 year old. And so bringing in something that can change that, um, that disorder for the rest of that child's life, potentially, um, people aren't, aren't ignoring that anymore, you know? So that's the only thing I'd add. Yeah. I just one extra point there. I think that when thinking about a novel category, um, it is really important to think of, and this is in one sense, it's an obvious statement, but when you get into healthcare, it gets, it becomes less obvious, but it, it really think about what are those, uh, targets that uh, either your product or your category can um, can address that no other category, not just no other product, but no other category can address, right? And, um, and yeah, we, we've seen companies like Cognola and Achille do this uh, quite well. Um, Cognito is, is addressing novel targets as well. 
I think that, and I actually Med Rhythms is doing this, this as well. There, there are, um, there are examples of companies that really are leveraging the, the novelty and the modality to address uh, current, currently, and, and at least for the foreseeable future, undruggable uh, targets and pathways. And I think when you're able to do that, immediately you get an audience and then it's, you know, kind of your game to lose uh, as far as the evidence that you bring uh, to, to that audience. Okay, thank you. So, so what, what's coming through quite clear is number one, you need to identify the unmet need. Uh, number two, you don't have to present with the evidence and mm. make sure that you're speaking to the right people with the right evidence. So, I mean, you, you mentioned over just before there's a couple of companies that have fallen by the wayside. So, you know, I suppose it's two sides of the same coin. How, why did they fall by the wayside? And then what are the key things that you have to do to once you found the unmet need to actually then monetize that product and bring it through so it's successfully commercially? Yeah, you know, I think that... Uh there are really good companies out there that, uh, that you know, we, we saw um, not make it. And I think some of it, like Lantern is a early example of that. Good company, really, uh, you know, really skilled professionals in that company. It was digitized cognitive behavioral therapy as well. And um, some of this is just statistics, right? That, you, you literally are, if you have hundreds of companies um, trying to accomplish um, something that is really, really high risk in, in that you're, you're trying to scale a, a novel category, you just, no matter how good uh, every company is, um, you're, you're going to get some percent, even in that top echelon who fail. Um, and, that, and that can come down to management of uh, use of proceeds, you know, from a raise, whether a clinical study uh, didn't, didn't read out in time uh, or uh, read out and needed, you know, needed additional data, et cetera. It's just, I mean, this is a high risk endeavor. And so statistically, you're going to see failures. Um, I think looking at it from a postmortem perspective and how some of those, some of those companies could have done better, you know, and this is very easy to say today and very, and having lived it very difficult to say in the moment, um, it's, it, it, and we're kind of coming full circle here to some extent, but often there is a challenge with, with focus between the story that needs to be told or, or often is told to, uh, investors and, um, and the work that needs to be done in the company to advance uh, your your company and your uh, your endpoints to a place where you're de-risking the asset or de-risking the endeavor, um, and the confusion between those two uh, can cause a lot of issues and uh, and and can distract a company for years if all you're focusing on is the story to the investors. Um, you may not in, end up actually moving your company forward. And, uh, and sometimes you, you, you end up moving your company forward by default. But uh, that, that is something that is a, an ongoing challenge with a, an industry that is largely venture-backed. And, you know, and, and we have venture capitalist investors to thank for the successes that we have today. But, um, but yeah, I, I would say you could point to some of the, the confusion between those two as, as results for some failures as well. Mm -hmm. We've heard a lot of people say, we don't want to be like friend. We don't want to be friendster. Right. And, <laughs> and the different companies. And I'm like, yeah, but some of us are going to be, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. it, but that's just the way it works. Yep. Well, I, I kind of think, see that that almost fits into what you were saying right at the outset about your superpower right, in terms of keeping the eye on, what actually the long-term aim is uh, and what you try to deliver through those processes and then managing that process. Because it is, it is very easy when you're in a venture, venture capital-backed business to be 100% focused on what they're saying that they need and what you've mm -hmm. sold to them to get the finance in the first place. And you're trying to, yeah. if that 
that <laughs> that dichotomy of well we still need to do some of this because we need to meet with them regularly and they have to be happy with it but is that exactly what we need to do to actually make this business successful so i so i so i, so I get that that's in, that's that's a really interesting um challenge that uh all i think venture capital backed businesses have to dance obviously it's not one size fits all obviously andy you work with a lot of different businesses is, mm. is there some of those like key planks for success to get from you know we, we, we've found an unmet need and we want to now commercialize that product what are those key steps that you'd you'd suggest if if there's a new person listening today that knows nothing about digital therapeutics but trying to have an idea and, and have some backing yeah i mean it's start with your clinical validation right um, and while you're working on that, make sure that you know how you want to commercialize, right? So I can't say everyone's going to do it the same way because they obviously won't. Um, there are a lot of decisions that you can make that, um, could be, that are really just your preference, right? If you outsource field sales, if you partner with, with, um, a pharma company, if you build out your full sales structure yourself, it's not like one of those ways is going to ensure success or ensure failure. Um, in fact, that my opinion, they can all work right. And they can all fail. So, (laughs) so the second piece is really that the evidence, and I know we've been talking about evidence a lot, but your health econ data, your retrospective studies on claims data, your ability to explain to the market how it will fit in once you found that, that unique way that it might, um, function properly. And um, also really understanding and being honest with yourself about what it's worth, right? I've heard everything from this product could be $10 to this product is, could almost be a million. This digital product could be almost a million dollars. And um, the reality is it might, but it, <laughs> I see you laugh ever, but it might, but it, it just depends on what you're treating and what the cost of that, those patients are today, right? Treating cancers, hundreds of thousands of dollars, Um I don't think there'll be a digital product that cures cancer. Um, but assuming one comes out someday, then yeah, a couple hundred thousand dollars would be appropriate. So I think those are, and it, we've seen this and Everett has seen it because we've done pricing in the past. It's, it's really easy to say, okay, this value is, is through the roof, right? People are going to, this is going to be paid for. Um, but it's really about the cost offsets and, and, you know, understanding, your unique fit and who's paying for it. Um, and knowing that type of stuff up front and being open and honest with yourself and with venture capital is, I, I think would probably, um, you know, drive you towards success. And, and so what's the biggest issue you'd say to look out for? Cause obviously you've named clinical validation, understanding how to commercialize, making sure you've got the right data um and, and being honest with yourself what, what what would be the biggest sort of like warning sign you'd put anyone trying to to commercialize a, a digital therapeutic I, I mean Everett and i probably agree it's the reimbursement piece yeah. right yeah i i agree with that i also would say kind of what what drives reimbursement which isn't necessarily the the payer buy-in um, that that absolutely is part of it, but uh, this extraordinary thing happens when you are creating value for patients and physicians and returning value to a payer, and that is that payers figure out a way to reimburse and pay. I think a big challenge is that people look at the state of of how a, a product is monetized. They kind of jump over multiple steps in one and and so in digital therapeutics often how a product is monetized is that in payer whether it's a health insurance company employer etc but what we really need to see are physicians demanding the product for their patients and when that happens yeah payers will figure it out and they they do we we there are multiple examples of that where i mean lavongo is a good example you know lavongo Sure, started in a place where there was existing coding, but they ultimately branched into a form of of contracts and reimbursement that was beyond existing reimbursement pathways. And they were able to do that because 
they had patients and physicians asking for their product and demanding their product. And, um, and so I think it gets back to those fundamentals of solving an unmet need in a way that no other uh, product can targeting novel, uh, novel targets or addressing novel targets and bringing all the evidence, et cetera. But, but I think that that key challenge that we all hear in this space over and over again of, well, is reimbursement really in place yet? And uh, there's still some yeah, framing of, of that house that needs to be built, but to accelerate that and to accelerate that infrastructure build, I think the big thing that we need to look out for is will physicians and will patients demand this? Because if they do, things move really quickly. Thank you. Now I don't because I, I know you've got a hard stop over it. Have you? Are you okay, or you need to? Yeah, I've got a few minutes. I can uh, I, I I can push it off a few. So. Okay, no problem. So um, yeah, all, all, all I was going to say at that point was so. I mean, if you if you were both to go back to when you started, what, what are your key learnings? What what would you do different now than than you wouldn't have thought about when you started? Hmm. Hmm. Andy, you want to? I've got that list is so long of, <laughs> <laughs> of, of hard learnings. Yeah, so I, I I can keep it really short. I I think that uh, it would be um, yeah, it would be developing evidence that would drive in in developing strategies that would drive physician demand um, while educating the rest of the market because at the core of in the, it's. That's it is a generalization because at the core of some disease states, physician, I mean, patient demand is what drives the the needle or moves the needle. Things like uh, obesity, for example, and weight management, largely that's a that's a patient driven, user even you know consumer driven market. But in other disease states, and by and large in other disease states, it's it's a physician demand driven market. And the dominoes that start to fall when physicians start to demand things um, are, are pretty incredible. And, it, and going back, I think we focused so much in a very laser-driven way on, on payers. And we, time and time again, we had payers say, well, what do the physicians think? And will they, will they want to use this? We, we should have had a a better answer for that before we went into those early meetings. And now we do. Now, now when we, we go in, we've, we've done our homework. So we, we did learn. It was just a hard learn, <laughs> a hard process. No, that's, that's what I was thinking was it, uh, going through this um, has been such a great experience and great journey. You know, if I'd stayed in pharma, I never would have experienced this. Um, and so to your point, even though there were times where it was incredibly difficult um, there was never a time where I thought this isn't exactly what I want to be doing right now, you know? So, I mean, some of the things that we learned or some of the things that maybe I would want to do different were sort of accidental, right? Like does one insurance company care about enough about our product to do a pilot with us? Well, awesome. That's the one I'm going to, right? Yeah. I've had people say to me, you know, how do you strategically pick like five to 10 different pilots with different payers. And I'm like, it's, there's, I they talk don't. to as many as I can and hopefully yeah. one of them says yes. <laughs> yeah. so, so I suppose yeah. what you're saying, it's, it's all about trying to understand the whole of the process better. So you know mm -hmm. how those interdependencies work together so that you're not just going, because I think, you know, in, in, in most sales, people always think, yeah, I've got to go to the payer. If I can get the money, then I'm fine. When actually, yeah. well, yeah, you got the money, but no one wants to buy, or no one's yeah. actually been influenced to buy. So mm, you, you need to do it all, almost like <laughs> at the same time, so that when you go into one, yeah, we've got we've got the reimbursement, so that's no problem. You can prescribe, and yeah, we've got the prescribers, so when you reimburse, people are going to use it, etc. So, so I think that 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 that's a very good lesson for anyone who's yeah. in any and kind of healthcare uh, environment, really. Mm -hmm. Sorry, yeah, sorry, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. I'm, I'm glad to say that because, you know, you'll see different leaders in this, in this industry who have different backgrounds, right? It was big, in, big in pharma when it first started, people were pulling people out of pharma with that experience. 
Um, but I would say one of the most unique um, people was my my last CEO at uh, at Cognoa because he came out of specialty. And while there's a lot that especially doesn't mirror digital therapeutics, that building of the ecosystem is almost exactly the same. Like ensuring that you have your key opinion leaders and your your market influencers and that they're loud about it, you know, and that the patient's voices are heard. And, and all of a sudden when you build all of that, then the medical policy question of when that's going to get updated at the, at the payer level is, is a lot different because they already have people in their ear saying we need this, we need it now. And so that, that approach is really important, especially, especially with where we're at in the industry. Um, you know, pharma, you get, you can be prescribed, right? As soon as, as soon as you launch, launch a new drug, it can be prescribed. That is not the case at all for us. And, and the other thing is, you know, if you have high cholesterol, you're like, okay, I'll, I'll take medication. I'll, I'll fix that over time. I'm not going to have a heart attack tomorrow, most likely, but the patient journey that you watch in, in specialty, right. If you, if you're diagnosed with cancer, that is, that's not an easy thing to hear. Right. Which is why a lot of those manufacturers have so many additional services for the patients along the journey that if, if in Cognos, you know, um, as an example, if you get prescribed a diagnostic to be potentially your child has autism, that's not like a, Oh, I'll just do this and we'll just see it. It'll be fine. That's a parent saying, wow, this is going to impact the rest of our, all of our lives in this, in this family. And so you need more than just, Hey, it's, di- it's prescribed. And then you're going to get a diagnosis and I'll leave it at that. Cause I'm rambling. And I know everyone needs to jump. so so i want to thank you both actually because it's been really interesting i think we've scratched the service i'm I'm probably going to contact you offline and try and get you back on so we can actually delve a bit deeper into rabbit hole because we've really just touched the 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 the, the very surface of it so um from, from if there's somebody watching this listening to this who's interested in digital therapeutics or they've already started down that line, but you don't know them, Andy, for example, how would they get in contact with, you know, Digital Therapeutics Alliance? Go to our website, dpxalliance.org. And you can probably reach me directly or LinkedIn. We have, we have people that, um, that manage that too, which if you want to follow up, I can, I can give you their, their contact information if people want it because we'd love to talk to everybody. We are a global organization. So we're in 16 different countries. So it's not like if you're in the UK, we don't offer value to you. Um, we absolutely do. Okay, so perfect. So I'll, I'll drop those links into the podcast. So as I said, I'll, I'm going to try and get these guys back on because I'm finding it fascinating. And, and I know that, that obviously we've, we've got short time today. So Andy Molnar and uh, Everett Crossland, thank you very, very much. Thank you so much, Hakeem. This has been a real thank pleasure. You. Yes, appreciate it. Cheers.